Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. The Authority of the Word of God. Part 6. James Boyd. Contents. The Son of God and the Scriptures. The Man of God's Counsels. The Son of Man. The Son of God and the Scriptures. The Second Man is the Lord from Heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 4. The Scripture cannot be broken. John chapter 10 verse 35. As regards ourselves, who are by nature Gentiles, the whole fabric of scripture authority rests upon the basis of the greatness of the person of Jesus. The answer of my faith to the question, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Must regulate my thoughts regarding this all-important subject. And as a matter of fact, I find that the way in which people do answer this question makes all the difference as to their ideas of inspiration. I never knew a man sound upon the doctrine of the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, who harbored the least doubt in his mind regarding the divinity of Jesus. Neither have I ever known anyone who looked upon Jesus as the Creator incarnate, and who relegated the Bible to a lower place than the Word of God. I am sure it will be found that these two convictions are inseparably connected, and that where any one of them is not welcome, the other will refuse to enter. One who has recently apostatized from the faith of Christianity questions if we ever would have heard of the Old Testament had it not been for Jesus, and though it may be very difficult to say what might or might not have been, had the light of the gospel of Christ never reached us, we certainly would not have had any real faith in it apart from the Son of God. We have received the Holy Scriptures solely through faith in Him. He has authenticated to us the writings of Moses and the prophets, and the writers of the New Testament declare their epistles to be the commandments of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 14.37, and that not only the thoughts, but the words in which those thoughts were conveyed to us, were words chosen by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13. If these statements of theirs, which lay claim to such authority, are falsehoods, then they are the most wicked falsehoods ever told to men, for their lies against the living God. And as they concern the most important matters with which the human race has to do, they are the inventions of soul murderers. These statements of the avowed followers and servants of Jesus are accompanied, on the one hand, with the promise of eternal and unspeakable blessedness for the believer, and, on the other hand, the most terrible consequences of unbelief are announced as hanging over the head of the impenitent rebel, and all these things are placed before the reader in language which is absolutely simple, natural, unstrained and bearing no resemblance to that which rises from the frenzied imagination of crack-brained zealots. If what they affirm of their words and writings be not true, they were a crowd of wicked and bad men, and they can be believed in nothing. And yet we owe to those men all that we have ever heard of Jesus. And my knowledge of men gives me the most perfect assurance that such a person as he of whom they testified could not be created in the mind of a child of Adam. His story touches the most tender chords of the human heart, and his moral excellency so mightily appeals to the soul of the faithful disciple, that his most blissful moment is when he is at the feet of this adorable person as a worshipper. So great is Jesus, so morally different from every other human being, so completely free from all the unworthy motives which govern others, so gracious, guileless, gentle, meek, lowly, compassionate, merciful, self-sacrificing, righteous, holy, harmless, good so completely unique in all his characteristics, and so unlike man, as we know man, in every solitary way, that some have questioned if such a person ever really existed. But if his disciples invented him, they must have travelled for their conception outside the sphere in which the thoughts of men revolve, and if they ever took such a journey. We have to ask ourselves what power it was which carried them into those hitherto unexplored and unknown regions of purest thought, and imprinted upon their imaginations the moral glories with which they decked him of whom they spoke as the Son of God. If Jesus were an invention of those who called themselves his disciples, then his disciples were not ordinary men, for they have certainly gone beyond all that can be understood by men of the world. 
leaving this world, after having revealed the Father, Jesus has to say, O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, John chapter 17 verse 25, and again, they have not known the Father, nor me, 16 to 3. The Father cannot be known by a mere child of Adam, nor can the second man be known by the first. There is no analogy between the Father and the world, nor between the man made of dust and the man out of heaven, both Father and Son are beyond the ken of the men of this world. The gods of the heathen are by the makers of them endued with passions such as men have, they are morally like men, but with greater strength. And if I take the heroes of the novelist, pride and self-reliance are the prominent features, for these are the characteristics in which men delight, but not one of them is like Jesus. There is nothing in common between men, as I know man, and the Son of God. It is only in the Bible I can find him. How is this? If those fishermen of Galilee invented him, how is it that no one has been able to invent another who can be compared with him? And how is it that now that he has been invented, he is so little understood that the greatest minds on earth, even when well-intentioned, cannot reproduce him? Their frequent attempts have been at best but miserable caricatures. Apart from the holy anointing, the indwelling Spirit of God, no one can know the Father and the Son. Read the best-written life of Jesus ever produced by the uninspired pen of an unregenerate man, and then turn to the four Gospels and see if it is not an emergence out of thick darkness and the domain of death, into marvelous light, and the radiant sphere of everlasting life. As you read the nine Beatitudes which introduce the Sermon on the Mount, you are made to feel as though a door were opened in heaven, and the whole atmosphere about you at once becomes redolent with the perfume wafted from the paradise of God, then pass on until you hear the bells of heaven pealing forth the welcome of a returning scape gallows who in broken utterances sobs out his repentance into the gracious ear of a saviour God, and you must feel that all this is outside the sphere in which the thoughts of men revolve, and that you are made to listen to the pulsations of immortal love. When you have finished with this, if you ever can finish with it, turn to John chapter 13 and behold the grace of that lowly Son of God, doing the most menial service for his disciples which it is possible for one man to perform for another, and listen to those counsels of grace, wisdom, and holy love which fall from his blessed lips upon the ears of his humble followers, and follow him until he is done speaking to them, and turns his eyes up to heaven, and pours into the ears of his father his desires for them, and for all who will believe on him through their word, and hear him demand on their behalf. As one who has a righteous claim upon the wealth of power, and grace, and love, which in the father dwell, then follow him to the judgment hall of the Roman governor, and hearken to the leaders of his earthly people howling for his heart's blood, and follow the crowd to dark Golgotha, and behold him who made the world's led as a lamb to the slaughter, nailed to a gibbet as a malefactor, and that between two robbers, and watched to the close, until he is taken down dead. While darkness enfolds the land, and under your feet you feel the earth reel beneath the weight of the corpse of him who was its creator, while the rocks are rent and the graves are opened, and if, after witnessing these things, you can flatter yourself that Jesus was a man like other men, or that such a person either was, or could be, the invention of his disciples. You have a way of judging and arriving at conclusions unknown to me. From the benighted heart of the pagan centurion who had charge of the crucifixion was wrung the confession, truly this man was the Son of God, Mark chapter 15 verse 39. May the reader's heart be at least as impressionable. This is the glorious person who has authenticated to us the Old Testament, of which he is the subject, as he is also of the New. As to Israel, the law was given to them by Moses, and accompanied by such visible manifestations of majesty and terror on the part of God, that its divine origin could not by them be called in question. And as to the prophets, their word was proven to be of God by the sanctity of their lives, by its harmony with that which was given through Moses. 
and by the signs and wonders with which God was sometimes pleased to send it forth, though generally speaking, the prophets who after Moses were used of God to build up the canon of Scripture do not seem to have been miracle workers. Men like Elijah and Elisha, who were characterized by miraculous manifestations, have not been used to put anything on record, though their words and works and manner of life have been recorded by others. The Jewish scriptures were well authenticated to the people, but we Gentiles were outside all those special dealings of God. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. We have come into this rich inheritance through having to do with God revealed in Jesus. He came to his earthly people in fulfillment of the promises made to the fathers, but they rejected him, and slew him with the sword of the Romans. God raised him from the dead, and in answer to the prayer of Jesus from the cross on their behalf, Luke chapter 23 verse 34, offered to send him back to them if they would repent, Acts chapter 3 verse 20. The stoning of Stephen was their answer to this, and closed the door of hope to the nation, therefore devout men made great lamentation over his death, for in his grave every hope of Israel after the flesh was buried. Then the Gentiles come up for blessing before God, and the persecutor of the church is converted and sent to them. The perfect revelation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God in whom the Jews boasted, came in the word made flesh. So that believers from among the Gentiles find themselves linked up in the worship of the true God with Abel and all the faithful from his day until the coming of Christ. In this way we have a title to the Old Testament as well as to the New, and to us the two volumes become one book, both equally inspired of God. The authority of the old established for us in the submission of Christ to every jot and tittle, though a better thing has been brought in by him, for the old was but the demand. Whereas the new is the supply. The subtle way in which men who call themselves Christians put before the public theories which are in direct antagonism to the plain statements of scripture. Is a plain proof of the determination to undermine in the thoughts of men whatever bit of confidence they may still possess in the Bible as the word of God. If they would tell us plainly that they had abandoned Christianity as a useless encumbrance in the pursuit of knowledge, one might be grieved and sorry for them, but they would not be sailing under a false flag. Neither would their ways fill one with the same measure of disgust and loathing. I may be told that these men think there is much in the scriptures that is really valuable, and therefore they do not feel justified in casting them aside as altogether useless. But if the Bible be not the word of God, and if Jesus be not a divine person, and if we have no revelation from God, and if the apostles were a set of deceivers and knaves. But here I am interrupted at once, and reminded that the writers are considered to have been good and true men. Are they? Did Jehovah say to the prophets the things which they spoke to men as his word? Was the burning bush a fact in the life of Moses? Jesus said it was, but was it? Is the exotic account of the deliverance of Israel from the power of Pharaoh true? What about the passage through the sea, the desert, the manna, the water out of the rock? Whose son was he who said, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness? John chapter 6 verse 49. Did Jesus work the wonders which are recorded of him? They are recorded by the evangelist, that we should believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. John chapter 20 verse 31. Is the greatness of this person built upon a foundation of falsehood, and is it upon a raft of lies against the living God we are to float into the harbour of eternal life? Did these good and true men who wrote the Gospels and Epistles concoct the baseless wonders with which they accredit Jesus, and leave them on record encased in a framework of piety as hypocritical as false? This is not what I should expect from men who are good and true. And yet they do commend themselves to the conscience of all men as both good and true. No one can question that they believed the things which they have put on record. And how could they have been deceived? They were not men easily convinced, and the deeds were not done in a corner.
they were neither credulous nor easily imposed upon, and though the persistent unbelief was failure, and had to come under the rebuke of their Lord, it gives additional weight to their testimony, which they gladly bore for his honour and for our eternal blessing, when the last cloud of unbelief at length yielded to the gracious influence of that eternal day, which broke upon their souls as they stood beside the empty grave of him who could not be holden of death, the man of God's counsel. We see Jesus, crowned with glory and honour. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. It is impossible to connect the idea of chance with any of the ways of God. Not even a sane man will commence a work without having in his mind the image of that upon which the labour of his hands is to be employed. A man may not be able to perfect his idea, he may find, as his work proceeds, that it will not answer the purpose for which he intended it, and therefore he may have with reluctance to abandon it. He may even learn something in the midst of his toil which may cause him to make considerable alterations, so that the thing when finished is very different from his original conception. This comes from being unable to grasp at the outset every detail connected with the subject in hand, and everything that will be necessary to do, in order to arrive at perfection. But this can never be the case as regards the activities of God. It is impossible to think of him as limited in wisdom, skill, or understanding. He must be infinite in every one of his attributes. The man who thinks otherwise, if any such man exist, can have no true thought of the Creator in his soul. Man is only a finite being, and, as I have suggested, while he proceeds with his work, new ideas strike his mind, for though perfection be his ideal, he can never arrive at it. He does not know the power and value of the elements with which he has to work, neither does he perfectly know their relation to one another, nor always the result of certain combination. Hence he is ever astonishing himself with his new discoveries, and bringing out new invention. Not so God, the Creator can learn nothing from his creation. The universe is the conception of his infinite mind, and it is impossible that he could receive any instruction from it. The Lord by wisdom has founded the earth, by understanding has he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up, and the clouds drop down the dew. Proverbs chapter 3. 19-20. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things, to whom be glory for ever. Romans chapter 11 verses 34 to 36. He has not, as some suppose, been from the outset doing the best he can, contending with the inroads of evil, meeting the adverse power to the best of his ability, and ever, through the growth of intelligence, improving upon the past. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. Psalm chapter 50 verse 21, is the charge he makes against the wicked, and it is a charge of which all are guilty who have not learned him in Jesus. It is impossible for me to imagine the Creator forming a universe like the one of which I form a part, without having distinctly before him its whole history, and the ultimate result of all his activities in connection with it. His plans must all have been formed before he began his work, and when we come to Scripture this is just what we find. The book of those counsels is alluded to more than once, Exodus chapter 32 verse 32, Psalm chapter 40 verse 7, Psalm chapter 139 verse 16. We have counsel, promise, choice, and purpose referred to again and again, and the central object in all those counsels is the man who was predestined to give effect to them. As Adam was the man set upon the footing of responsibility, and who, failing to fulfill that responsibility, fell under the power of evil, so Christ is the man of divine counsel, who upholds everything by the power of God. It was ever the thought of God to set up all things in his own power. Nothing can stand but that which is upheld by the might of God. If this be kept in mind, it is easy to see that the man of God's counsels must be a divine person. No creature is capable of maintaining himself in blessing on the principle of obedience, and none but a divine person could carry out the thoughts of the Godhead.
Christ is not a development of the race of Adam. He is not the best man of that race that ever lived, or the most perfect that ever walked the earth. He is not of the old order at all. He is that last Adam, and the last Adam is not a mere improvement upon the first. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, the second man is out of heaven. The first Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit, 1 Cor, 15. The first had his origin from earth, the second had his origin from heaven. The first man was made to bask in the goodness of God, the second had his place in the bosom of the Father. There are mysteries in connection with the Son which no creature can fathom, no man knows the Son but the Father, but that, on the divine side, he was equal with the Father is fully revealed in Scripture and that, on our side, he was man is just as strongly insisted. He is spoken of as the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. A recent writer, who for a little while made a great stir in the religious world, tells us that the truth about the person of Jesus is to be the great question for religion in the near future. The truth is, it has been the great question since the hour in which he took his place in public testimony for God. The Baptist bore testimony to him as the Son of God, the thong of whose sandals he was unworthy to loose, John chapter 1. The Father also bore witness to him, opening heaven upon him, and saluting him as his beloved Son, in whom he had found his delight, Luke chapter 3 verse 22. The Old Testament bears witness to the greatness of this wondrous personage. Isaiah speaks of him as the one whose rebuke dries up the sea, and makes the rivers a wilderness, who clothes the heavens with blackness, and makes sackcloth their covering. And yet one to whom Jehovah had given the tongue of a disciple, whose ear he had opened to hear as the instructed, who gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair and who hid not his face from shame and spitting, Isaiah chapter 50. He is the object of the worship of angels, Psalm chapter 97, compare Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6, saluted as God upon the throne, Psalm chapter 45, addressed as the everlasting creator of the heavens and the earth, Psalm chapter 102. And yet called up from the depths of death to sit upon the right hand of God, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, Psalm chapter 110. Now it is true that, no man knows the Son but the Father, Matthew chapter 11, yet there is a way in which he is to be known by his people. It is life eternal to know the Father, and Jesus Christ his sent one, John chapter 17 verse 3, and believers are all to come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13. There are mysteries about this person that no creature mind can grasp, and it is exceedingly dangerous to allow the human reason a loose rein in the contemplation of such a sacred and profound subject. When we think of the fullness of the Godhead, inhabiting a human body, a divine person for 33 years confining himself to the limits of a man, yet never less than the omnipotent creator, we become convinced that in such a contemplation the imagination of man can have no place, and that to move a single step one way or another without divine support would be to court disaster, land us in the depths of error, and expose us to the attack of the enemy of our soul. We are only safe when we keep close to the revelation we have of him in the scriptures of truth. That he was, and remains, a man, these scriptures affirm, that he is the creator is also affirmed, and that he was always fully conscious of who he was is also maintained. The truth about his person may be the question in the near future, but as I have already said, it is as old as his advent into the world. Jesus put the question to the scribes, what think ye of Christ, whose son is he, and uncovered him to be without any true light on the point. They had no higher idea concerning him than that he was the son of David, but the fact that David had in spirit called him Lord was more than they could understand. This was the question of the day for the Jews, and it was because he bore witness to this truth that they condemned him to the death of the cross, John chapter 19 verse 7. It is also the question of today, and it will be the question until the day of his manifestation in glory.
Believers can say, we know that the Son of God is come, and has given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This person, is the true God, and eternal life, 1 John chapter 5 verse 20. During the time in which the first man was under probation, and while, by every trial to which he was subjected, it was being clearly demonstrated that he was utterly untrustworthy and unprofitable. The positions of trust in which he was placed, which tested his ability to hold the position for God, shadowed forth the offices which would be taken up by the second man, and fulfilled to the glory and praise of God. Hence for two reasons the trial was never repeated. When God committed to man a position of trust and he failed to hold it faithfully, he had no second opportunity. In the first place, the trial was perfect, and the circumstances under which the trial took place were always most favorable to the probationer. To have given a second occasion would have been to admit that something had been overlooked in the first, which should have been kept in mind, and that because of this, the evidence was not quite conclusive. In the second place, in all those prominent men in the past dispensation, to whom positions of trust were committed, Christ was being shadowed forth, and this being so, no more was required than that the picture should be drawn and the position indicated, when this was done its purpose was served, and it disappeared. This explains things which often seem inexplicable to the superficial reader of scripture. Men are sometimes installed in a position of dignity and trust with as much ceremony as though they were to abide in it forever. And in connection with this position an order of things is established with as much care, exactitude, grandeur, and glory as though it were never to be shaken. And the next thing we are called to witness is the complete collapse and ruin of everything, and the announcement of something fresh seals its complete and final rejection. It was but a picture drawn by the Spirit of God to illustrate a position which the man of God's counsels would one day take up and maintain to the honor of God. Hence Christ is the one set forth in such men as Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, David, Solomon, Nebuchadnezzar, and many others, for in every one of these men was set forth some position, office or headship, which would be filled by the one whom God had in reserve, and who was to come to light when the worthlessness of the first man would be perfectly demonstrated. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, Ephesians chapter 1, all these men will be seen to have been figures, as Adam was, of him that was to come, Romans chapter 5 verse 14. He will hold for God everything in which these men fail. Fallen Adam was head of the old fallen race, Christ is head of the new righteous race. Adam brought in sin and death, Christ brought in righteousness and life, Adam through his disobedience, Christ through his obedience. Adam's act of disobedience had its bearing toward all men in the way of condemnation, so the obedience of Christ, proved in his death, has its bearing toward all in the sense of justification. Sin and death came in by Adam, and have their bearing toward all men, and righteousness and life came in by Christ and have reference to all. If all are lost in Adam, God has raised up a righteous head for men, so that all may be saved in him. He gave himself a ransom for all, for God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore the gospel is preached worldwide that men may turn to God through Christ and find salvation. Christ is to be everything to every man, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption core, 130. But then it should be understood by all, that if Christ was to take up the position of life-giving head toward all men, the question of righteousness cannot be ignored. There was the question of sin between man and God, and who could touch it. Christ will not ignore all the rights which God has over his creature. Even between men satisfaction must be offered to the offended party before right relations can be established. It may be the offended party is magnanimous enough to forgive everything, but relations thus established are never of the happiest or most lasting nature. 
There must be a basis of righteousness if confidence and quietude of soul are to exist undisturbed forever. If this be so with regard to the relations of men with one another, how much more is it true with respect to our relations with God? Seeing that the slightest friction between us and him would make every thought of God a terror to us, and our very existence one of utter misery. In the book of Divine Counsel, to which I have already referred, we get brought to light, not only the one who was to accomplish those counsels, but also the fact that a body was to be prepared for him. The sacrifices and offerings belonging to the law were valueless to take away sins, therefore if the will of God is to be done a sacrifice of infinite value was necessary. This was furnished by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10. In the Psalm, 40, which speaks of this book, and of the accomplisher of the will of God, we have this wondrous person crying out of the horrible pit and the miry clay, and heard in resurrection, when his feet are placed upon a rock, and a new song put into his mouth. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews gives us to understand that one reason for his taking a body was, that through death he might destroy the devil, who had the might of death, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 to 15. Another reason given was, that we might be set apart to God in the value of that offering, chap. 10.10, our consciences perfected and our hearts won, so that we might be at home in the presence of God. His death is the basis of all blessing, and is the foundation upon which will be built up the whole fabric of the new heavens and the new earth, a universe secure from the invasion of evil. The Son of Man. What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the Son of Man? That thou visitest him, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6. To prove that a God of infinite goodness is not the author of this world in its present state requires no elaborate argumentation, nor does it make any demand upon the least ratiocinative ability. It is everywhere, and in everything, abundantly manifest that a beneficent creator would not voluntarily give his creatures, whom he has endowed with intelligence, affections, sensitivity, accountability to himself and to his fellows, into the darkness, the distress, the suffering, the sorrows, the woes that are the portion of the whole human family. There must be some terrible reason for the state of things we find in this world, the pestilences, the horrors of war, the hatred, the murders, the corruption, the fear of death, the silence of heaven, the shrinking from the grave to which all are hastening, and the dread of something after, these evils cry out against our attributing to a benevolent creator the invention or origination of such a woeful state of things. Yet even on this earth we have indications, many and varied, that it is a beneficent creator who watches over the history of the earth's generations and teeming multitudes. The sunshine warms and comforts our bodies, and between its kindly influence and the rain from heaven the hearts of men are filled with food and gladness. The seasons come round in their appointed courses, and fulfill their several functions of mercy. Under the night cloud man lies down to rest, and his weary frame becomes thus refreshed and ready to answer to the demands of another day. And all this bears testimony to the goodness of God, and is given that men might feel after him, and find him, for he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live, and move and have our being, Acts 17. Thank God for his word, the revelation he has given us concerning himself. Where would we be without it? Would we be able without it to pick out of all his ways with us the witnesses of his faithful and generous care for our welfare, and, in spite of the innumerable evils that afflict our souls, to encourage our hearts in such a sense of his desire for our welfare that we would put out the hand of faith in the midst of the surrounding gloom, that it might lay hold upon his no, we require this precious revelation of himself which he in his infinite love has given us, that by it we may be made wise to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 15 to 17. And how beautifully this revelation sets before us the great thoughts of God, and how all his purposes, even before the beginning of his works, centered upon man. 
man whom we supposed he had neglected, and to whose sorrows he was indifferent, is supreme in the eternal thoughts of God. But for almost six thousand years men have groaned under the oppression of the enemy, and as far as any public display of power is concerned it is all in the hands of the enemy. And deliverance seems as far off as it was at the beginning. Man is still under death, still dominated by sin and the devil. Through what mighty man is the deliverance of the oppressed to be effected? We are, blessed be God, left in no doubt as to this. Almost the first words that fell upon the ears of our fallen parents from which they could derive any hope were those that were spoken to the serpent that deceived them. The seed of the woman was to bruise his head. Adam could effect nothing. His own deliverance, as well as the deliverance of any of his posterity, depended upon the seed of the woman. Not Adam, but the Son of Man is the one whom God has made strong for himself, Psalm chapter 80 verse 17. He is to be supreme in the universe of God. Everything is to be put under his feet. The only exception to this is God himself. He is to be preeminent in every department of the universe, for this is the decree of God from all eternity. Around him all the thoughts of God center. He is the object of all prophetic scripture. The prominent men in past dispensations were only figures of him, shadows of the man that filled the vision of God. When the psalmist looked up into the heavens and contemplated the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars which he had ordained, the littleness of man came before him. And he wondered that God took such account of him. But if the littleness of man filled the vision of the psalmist so that he was forced to exclaim, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, it was Christ that filled the vision of the spirit, not Adam. But the seed of the woman, the son of man, the object of divine counsel, and he saw everything put under his feet, and though this is not manifestly so yet, the same spirit fixes our attention upon the man in heaven, who is crowned with glory and honor, having tasted death for everything. If we see not yet all things put under man, we see the man under whom everything is to be put, and we see him in the highest place in glory. We find a most interesting reference to him in the 8th of Proverbs. There, speaking as wisdom, he says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old, then I was by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth. And my delights were with the sons of men. Now when we come to the truth regarding the greatness of the Son of Man we find that he is the Creator himself, all things were made by him, John chapter 1. Col 1, Heb. 1, and yet he is viewed here as by, the Creator, when he made the heavens and the earth. The reason of this, I have no doubt, is that he is there viewed solely as the man of God's counsels, and that he was the object or purpose with regard to creation. And everything was made with regard to its being taken over by this Son of Man who gave direction to the whole character of the work as one brought up with him, is translated in the revised version, a master workman, verses 30, and it has also been translated, his artificer. The meaning, I am persuaded, is that everything was created in view of Christ taking it under control as man on the ground of redemption. For we must keep in mind, as I have said, that he is creator, and that he made the universe and all that is in it for himself, Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, and when it became necessary for the glory of God and for the fulfillment of divine counsel, that he should take the place of leader of the salvation of the many sons that God was bringing to glory. And when it was necessary for the exigencies of that glory that redemption should be wrought, he tasted death for everything, for it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. In bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Therefore the one who created everything has tasted death for everything that everything might be placed on the ground of redemption to the glory of God. His sufferings were first of all for the glory of God, that in the creation where God was so dishonored through sin, sin might receive its judgment. 
and that when and where sin would receive its judgment God would be glorified, not only in every one of his attributes but in his very nature. In the second place, he suffered the suffering of death in order that the devil, who had the power of death, might be annulled, and that deliverance might be effected for those who, on account of the fear of death, had been all their lives subject to bondage. In the third place, he suffered to make propitiation for the sins of those who were to be his companions in the day of his glory. And in the fourth place, he suffered, being tempted, in order to be able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and to be able to succor us when we are tempted, see Hebrews chapter 2, in the Old Testament. And in the New, by all the writers except Paul, the use of the title, the Christ, connects, as far as my memory serves me, the Saviour with the people of Israel. I know that the woman of Samaria connected the Christ with the world but though this be true, the Lord had already told her that, salvation was of the Jews, and the salvation of the world really depends upon Jehovah's resumption of relationship with his earthly people. To this great truth the prophets bear abundant testimony, and so also does the Apostle of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 9 verses 12 to 15. But under the title of, Son of Man, he is not viewed in connection with any special family upon earth. It is a title that speaks of universal headship and blessing. At the same time we must keep in mind that the application of this title to the Saviour and the order of things that are connected with it do not set aside, disarrange, or alter the conditions of blessing that are brought before us under the title of the Christ. It is simply that the title Son of Man extends the field of vision to the utmost limits of the universe including all that is brought before us in the titles, Son of Abraham, Son of David, King of Israel, the Christ, or any other. In the Gospels, rejected by the Jews, he will not allow himself to be called the Christ, but tells his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the priests and elders of the people, and be delivered to the Gentiles, who would expose him to every indignity, and in the end put him to death. To Nicodemus he testifies that, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, not for the sake of Israel only, but that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The title Son of Man carries with it universal power and blessing. But not only must the Son of Man come under the suffering of death, but he it is who breaks the power of death, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of those that are dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 21. If man in the person of Adam brought in death, the Son of Man has broken its power and brought about resurrection in the power of God. But the first to be raised is himself, he is firstborn from the dead Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, and God has set him far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named. Not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and given him to be head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him that fills all in all. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 to 23. And all that are his who have passed away from earth shall be raised in his likeness, for he is the pattern of the redeemed family. He will raise his sleeping saints in glory, and change the living along with them into his own image, for we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. And because he is son of man all judgment is committed to him, and the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John chapter 5. He has authority everywhere. And he has a right to this authoritative position in the universe. First, because he created it. Second, because he redeemed it. Third, because for the glory of God he was humiliated in the sight of it. What a multitude of varied glories cluster around this title of Son of Man, the man of divine counsel, the architect of all creation, the creator himself, the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David. 
the man whom Jehovah has made strong for himself, the destroyer of the power of death, the resurrection and the life, the bread that came down from heaven and which gives life to the world. The one who shall bruise the head of the devil, the judge of living and dead, Lord of angels, Lord of living, Lord of dead, Lord of all. The one under whose headship everything in the universe shall be gathered together, yet obedient to death, and that the death of the cross, made sin, accursed, the song of the drunkard, a worm and no man, mocked, derided, buffeted, abused, his face marred more than any other man's, his form more than the sons of men, groaning, sighing, weeping in a world of sin and rebellion against God, despised for his grace, hated for his love. Martyred for the truth, he drank the vinegar and gall of human ingratitude, and the bitter chalice of divine judgment against sin, rejected by the Jews, crucified by the Romans, betrayed by a friend, denied by a disciple, abandoned by his followers, forsaken by God, whose sorrow ever equaled the sorrow of this Son of Man. But shall not the glory be equal to the sorrow? Yea, God has highly exalted him, and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of heavenly, earthly, and infernal things and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father, Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. Every one must honor the Son as the Father is honored, John chapter 5 verse 23. Well may we prostrate ourselves in his presence and rejoice as we confess him.